0: West Virginia history and Black American history are uniquely connected. Although sometimes it feels like more of a disconnect. Back in 1863, the Mountain State was established from a constitutional amendment and for the most part proudly served the Union. Here in 2021, there's an ongoing debate on whether or not the Stonewall Jackson statue should still stand on the Capitol grounds.
1: Not exactly the harmony the state leaders foresaw 150 years ago. So throughout this month, here at the Mountaineer Media Podcast, we're going to discuss some of the issues that black West Virginians face today, as well as celebrate those who've changed the way we live. And what better way to start this discussion of black West Virginian history than with one of the most well-known leaders in Charleston, Reverend Matthew J. Watts.
0: Yeah, he's the senior pastor of Grace Bible Church on Charleston's west side, and has been a guiding light for African-American communities in West Virginia over the last two decades. He's as knowledgeable as they get about the history of West Virginia. We'll talk about that, but we'll also discuss things like health care and education. It's a very well-rounded conversation we have with Reverend Watts.
1: So without further ado, let's get you to our interview with the Reverend Matthew J. Watts. Mace, hit the music.
0: sun does not always shine in West Virginia, but the people always do. Okay, we're joined by Reverend Watts here on this episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast. Good afternoon. Uh, happy Monday to you. I hope all is well. Now that we've gotten to February, February obviously is Black History Month. That's something that's um, likes to be pointed out by by everybody. But at the heart of Black History Month, what is important about this month? What is what is the thing that people need to understand and, you know, be aware of, you know, mostly as, uh, you know, we, we turn into the second month of 2021? Well, I
2: think one of the things I think it's uh, good that people get aware of is that African-Americans have made uh, major contributions uh, to this republic uh, since they arrived here as early as 1619. You know, historians say the first African-Americans were described as the 20-odd Negroes that came up on a slave ship, and they were exchanged by Captain uh, Jopp for food and, and water and supplies to the Jamestown settlers. And then I would like to say that it's important that the broader community realize that African-Americans uh, were more than slaves from 1619, roughly to 1865. And uh, we've been more than a problem since, right? We've been major contributors, right? In every field of human endeavor in this nation, whether it be science, whether it's arts, whether it's entertainment, whether it's fighting in every war that's been waged here uh, at a disproportional uh, percentage, whether it's working in the, cotton fields and the rice paddies and in the coal mines of West Virginia, uh, African Americans have helped to build this nation. And so it's an opportunity to uh, to take a look at some of that and realize we really shouldn't have to have a separate mind. But unfortunately, Ooh. the uh, contributions of African Americans have not been included in the uh, United States' uh, historical narrative. Therefore, some years ago, uh, Native West Virginia Carter Woodson. Uh, so fit to establish first a week and then a month to try to highlight contributions of African-Americans.
1: And that's what Reverend Watts, you know, I had, we, we had a, um, an amazing poet and, you know, Afro Latin, Crystal Good. I'm not sure if you've ever um, met with Crystal Good, Um but she, she I think speaks you know, a lot.
0: You know, Crystal pretty
1: well, don't you?
2: Yeah. She's daughter. I
1: mean. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh.
2: She's sort of like a fifth daughter to me, actually. Yeah.
1: <laughs> yeah. Really? Okay, I'm didn't, yeah. didn't know your guys' relationship, but she often speaks, and you know, we had her on. We spoke a lot about you know Black history within West Virginia, um, and what it means to be you know Afro-Latian. Um, and I, I love what she says that it's it's not you can't just we have to reach to a point where you know the broader community and really white folks. It's not enough to just be like to say like oh like i'm not like racist or i'm not i guess you know like almost just accepting like whiteness and not call or being like passive to i guess what i'm trying to say to the overt like racism that that exists you have to be anti-racist i know like black history month like you said it's like we shouldn't have to have a month that like celebrates it um but i always find that interesting too is that you can't as a culture, we have to accept that you can't, I can't, you can't just let things go that even though they indirectly maybe benefit or like are a slight to the African-American community, you have to be, I guess, like anti-racist and and call it out when you see it. And and that's what I think maybe um, will eventually bring about a point where we don't have to have a certain month, I guess, if that makes sense.
2: I think that's that's an excellent observation. You know, I'm a bit older than you guys are, a lot older. And of course, a lot older and crystal as well. And, and I've said this to people, and not in any way um, uh, regretting being born in West Virginia and regretting spending sixty-three of my sixty-five years in West Virginia because I love this state and I love the people here, and really wouldn't want to live anywhere else. But I, I, I have to be honest with myself. You know, I've never really felt celebrated, you know, as an African American person here. To be honest with you, because of some of the uh, social justice positions and stances that I've taken, I think I've been at best just really tolerated, you know, right. unfairly criticized and excoriated, right? But that's that's been the lot uh, for being in this state, which I often refer to as wild and wonderful it is and almost heaven West Virginia. Uh, deep down within, you know, we still long to be a part of the uh, of Virginia Commonwealth and of the Southern uh, Confederacy. And because the African-American population is always so so small in this state, and I bring the people's attention, uh, Black people in West Virginia have never posed any type of threat to the political, social, cultural um, order of the state, Uh, which is a small population, 3.6% of the population. And so uh, we've had to depend upon uh, the goodwill of the majority uh, to protect our our rights and make sure we have equal protection under the law which I really question whether as or not we really do or not, but we've had to depend mm-hmm. upon that. And, and I think if you look at the history of West Virginia, it's always been quite ambivalent toward this issue of race. And I hear the rewriting of history, right? And most many Caucasians don't want to accept the fact, that you know, West Virginia came in as a slave holding state. It came in as a unique slave holding state. And most people realize in the original constitution uh, West Virginia said, we don't want any more black people to come to West Virginia, right? And of course, the Congress didn't accept that. But And then they did. They struck a compromise that slavery would gradually be ended in, in West Virginia, depending upon the age of the person at the time and when they would get freedom. Uh, but West Virginia was the only state that was under the control of the union that was exempt from the 1863 Emancipation Proclamation. People don't realize that. Yeah. And other states that held slaves and other territories tor- that held slaves were not exempt. And those slaves were free if they could get away. But uh, So it's a kind of a unique history. And I always like to say that in West Virginia we talked about the Civil Rights Movement. We never fully participated in it. And so there is a lot of uh, the residual uh, institutional uh, and structural racism that exists today. It goes undiscussed and certainly goes uh, unaddressed. And so many West Virginians look at uh, the problems in the rest of the country as being problems that are somewhere else. Mm -hmm. And they don't really see that within our state's DNA uh, was sown the same type of racism, same type of bigotry, marginalization, exclusion of African American people that was a part of the deep south. But because there was not a large enough population of blacks here to require the type of real rigid oppression uh, like mm-hmm. an aggressive uh, Ku Klux Klan that was hanging people, you know, on some frequency, uh, but there was a, a psychological, uh, emotional, and certainly a structural through economics, through education, uh, through social and cultural means uh, to accomplish same uh, effect, and that is uh, the marginalization of people of African descent in the state.
1: Yeah, and. <laughs> like it makes sense i mean it really really does make sense and something i've been educating myself on is that um it was recently you know like in the the last couple years in the news of like taking down of like the confederate um you know monuments and whatnot Mm -hmm. if you really do your research on that a lot of them were propped up during that 1920s 1950s era by the daughters of confederacy essentially to carry on the ideals of you know ex you know confederacy civil war folks um mm-hmm. and then of course like the renaming of stonewall jackson and those sort of things a lot of people on the surface think oh well that's just a name like why are we doing that but if you actually look at the true intentions of why those confederacy monuments were in place it was to keep keep in line and keep that sort of culture and celebratory thing for decades to come so i i, I think there's a lot of nuance to that. And I would I would encourage people to actually understand sure. why those were put up and, then, and sure. the actual good impact of kind of saying, OK, no, wait, we're not going to celebrate, you know, a very troubling time. And, you know, people in our in our country's history.
2: You're exactly right. and It's encouraging to me to see a young person like yourself, Cooper and CJ, to really kind of understand that and at least be open to explore it. As you pointed out, I mean, the daughters of the Confederacy, they did the exact opposite of what Robert E. Lee said should have been done. You right. lose the war, you lose. You power right. the flag, right? You don't fly it. You don't try to resurrect it. You lost. You gave it a great effort. But see, what, what, what I like to point out, too, is that it really shows this cognitive dissonance that existed in West Virginia. And I also go even to the naming of the states. So was an amateur historian, right? The name that the people voted on was Kanawha. Yeah, was supposed to be the name of the state of West Virginia, right? And there was some discussion about it being New Virginia, but the name they settled on was Kanawha. But when the few leaders got together, they decided on West Virginia over what the people had expressed a desire to be. So somewhere in some people's mind, they really was not prepared to give up being Virginians, right? Right. It'll be the new West Virginia, or new Virginia, or the new West Virginia. And secondly, as you pointed out, is that the only state born doing the uh, the civil war okay and they would come out of the civil war and then you know some years after the after the civil war so we're talking about you know uh, 50 years or so after the civil war we're going to resurrect the confederacy and we're going to reconnect west virginia to the right. virginia commonwealth because yeah. the daughters of the confederacy marched through the city of charleston and they dedicated the statue of stonewall jackson on the capitol grounds when the Capitol was in downtown Charleston. So then when the Capitol was moved to its current location, the statue of Stonewall Jackson was relocated to the current location. What people don't realize, you'll found an interesting piece of history that the statue of the Stonewall Jackson, right? It was uh, funded and erected and dedicated, I can't remember right off, but a number of years before there was a statue to the West Virginia, Men that fought for the Union Army. So wow. now, it's just a position on the western side of the Capitol, but it was several wow. years after that. And there were many, many years before there was a statue to Abraham Lincoln. So Stonewall Jackson was celebrated on the Capitol before, before. the union soldiers that fought and before Abraham Lincoln. That's so all crazy. of that is right there. If you go and read the fine print on your monuments themselves, I really found that interesting. And one last point I will make. The back um, 2015, I believe it was, when the nine martyrs were slain in the mother Bethel church down in Charleston, South Carolina, uh, by one Dalen Roof. And this conversation emerged in West Virginia about the renaming uh, of these, these Confederate monuments and schools and so forth. And um, the, the governor of the state, Earl Ray Tomlin, and I got the newspaper article, he announced dogmatically and emphatically, there will be no discussion, no discussion about the renaming of Confederate monuments in West Virginia, case closed. And if you go back and you, there was no discussion about it, it was held at the state level. And even to this day, the uh, West Virginia, uh, the group, I forget the exact title, they're responsible for maintaining the Capitol grounds. And a formal request was made to them several months ago uh, about removing the statute to uh, Thomas Stonewall Jackson and they have yet to respond to that request.
0: Well it's interesting just because there there have been so many feuds even even today there there are still rallies uh, at the Capitol and we just saw one last week there was one last week where a couple of guys kind of got into a, a shouting match but I mean this certainly is, is still a, a very hot topic that it, it, it's not going away I mean this is one of those things it's it's you would rather keep shouting until somebody finally listens right Than almost lay down and just let let it move on and let it pass
1: and Reverend Watts so you know we can circle back with like with this topic but tell us a little bit because I've known I've seen your name I mean I'm a lifelong Charleston resident um grew up born and raised in Charleston. I've seen your name you know in and around the news as a community leader for a long time. How did you um, first of all, like where what part did you grow up in Charleston? and then what was your path to becoming um, you know involved with the church? or was there a, a time in between or it, I guess basically what's your what's your origin story with that? Well, I
2: give each kind other of a kind of a brief overview, Barbaraber by a biographical sure. sketch uh, all, all of, the guess, I guess, of the Reverend Matthew J. Watts. I was born and raised in southern Western New coalfields, and in Mount Hope, which is a little small community right there in Fed County, about nine miles uh, north of Beckley and seven miles uh, south of Oak Hill, educating the public school system there, uh, living in segregated project neighborhoods. We moved in segregated projects with uh, my, my grandmother in 1963. And they remained segregated when we moved out in 1972. That just shows you how things worked despite mm-hmm. the Civil Rights Act of 64, uh, the Voting uh, Rights Act of 65, the Fair House, now of 68. We were still living in segregated, federally funded public housing in 1962. And they weren't uh, desegregated, I think, to 1976, I believe. you wow. went to Washington University Institute of Technology at the time at uh, Montgomery on a, a partial basketball and athletic scholarship. Uh, graduated with a degree in civil engineering. Uh, My background, I love math and science as a young person coming up. I went to Knoxville, Tennessee, worked for a couple of years after graduating from uh, Tech in 1977. And that's where I had a faith experience uh, there in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I I came to faith in Jesus Christ. Um, And from that point on, I really had a longing to return back home. And so I came back home in late uh, 1978 to work for the United States, uh, worked for Tennessee, I mean, uh, worked for Union Carbide Corporation. I worked with mm-hmm. United States Tennessee Valley Authority, in Knoxville, Tennessee, and worked there with, with Union Carbide from late 78 to uh, late in 1976. at which time I decided, you know, I really wanted to cast my caution, uh, cast caution to the wind and really go into the ministry full-time, uh, the pastor of the Grace Bible Church, and I established at that time a nonprofit organization, Hope Community Development Corporation. And my goal and my vision really was to take the engineering skills I'd learned in school the engineering, business, management, and logistics skills I've earned in working over 20 years in corporate America, and try to bring them to the community, uh, in particular the west side of Charleston, and see if we could make a difference over here to create a model that could serve as a template for the rest of the state and even other parts of the country. So that's kind of my story, you know, for the last uh, uh, 36 years, this is my 36 years of um, ministry at the Grace Bible Church, uh, uh, started the ministry there in 19, 84, my son of the church, and then came back uh, and went full time in 1976. Um, and so it was really just studying things. You know, um, I think my grandmother and my mother sort of uh, instilled in me kind of an intellectual curiosity to ask a lot of questions, to never accept the things the way things are. Why has to be this way? What could be differently? In my engineering training, it kind of taught me how to analyze things, how to look uh-huh. at things. And I remember learning a principle from the great Charles F. Kettering a brilliant engineer with the General Motors Corporation. And he made a statement uh, that I'll never forget. It's kind of guided my engineering career and even as a community developer. Developers, a problem uh, well-defined is a problem half solved. And so I've tried to take that approach to defining what really is the problem that we're dealing Mm -hmm. with. And if I can get it well-defined, then I'm halfway to the solution. And now I can take things I see in the problem find the right equation uh, if if I was an engineer or scientist and then put those things in to solve the problem. So uh, to sort of wrap this up, how I got into this really was just trying to figure out what was going, what was wrong. Why is it that children from certain communities like the west side of Charleston just didn't seem to be getting a good education even though we had some of the highest expenditures on public education in the state? Why is it that our kids were disproportionately in the juvenile justice system? Uh, why is it that we were disproportionately represented in the criminal justice system? Why is it that we as a people, African-Americans, were the poorest and the sickest with the poor health outcomes? Why, and why did nothing seem to change? I mean, no matter how much was done, nothing ever seemed to change. And so then just diving into it, you know, by diving into the west side of Charleston, going into schools, uh, developing programs to work in the juvenile justice system, going into the juvenile court, going and visiting the detention centers uh, and the correctional facilities, you know. And I begin to realize nothing works the way it's supposed to, and don't nobody care, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. It doesn't work the way it's designed to be worked, and it really doesn't care. And people actually continue to get paid whether or not things work the way they were designed to work. And I begin to realize there has to be some advocacy, there has to be some changes made, made and it has to be both at the policy level and at the uh, programming implementation level. So you gotta have right policies and then those right policies have to be properly funded and then properly executed at the community level. And I really begin to see where things really broke down at is when you got to the point of services delivery is what I call it, where things actually are supposed to get done. I don't care what the law is, what the policy is and what the funding is, it is how is it actually executed at the point of service delivery. And I realized that's where the real real problem is and how, how that is done. So that's what got me really involved. I mean, 27 years ago, I've been dealing with the legislature for 23 years, right, 24 mm-hmm. years, and trying to help shape and influence policy and then trying to follow the policy to this implementation. So to do that, I had to create a nonprofit organization said, we're going to do stuff. I'm not going to just be talking about stuff. So right. we're going to do things, right? So over the years, we've run some programs that people don't even realize. We ran at one time the largest reentry program for juvenile offenders in the state of West Virginia. Wow. It's funny about the federal government. And we had to, we was ranked number one, two, or three in the country for a five-year period uh, with the program. And then when it was completed, the state wouldn't fund it, which kind of blew us away. The federal government funded the program for four years with another fifth year because we had some money left over. And we had tremendous uh, success in kids that we were working with but the federal government they refused to fund the program. I mean, the state refused to fund it. And so, and they said they would take it over. And, and you know, that worked not very well. And we ran it at one time. We, we had funding to run a very large tutoring and mentoring after school program, which most people don't realize. Uh, between uh-huh. 2001 and 2004, we ran the uh, Kanoa County Youth Component Workforce Investment uh, Initiative. We had over 300 kids working during the summer during that program. And wow. I run that youth now that come up to me in different places. Remember, once you remember me? And I always say, Yes, I do. I remember you, but I don't know your name. <laughs> I recognize your face. So we, we did things, and people don't even realize we did all these things, right? We did these things, and it's documented that we did them, uh, but we could not get sustained funding. And I'm going to tell you why. You can't be an advocate, you can't be a truth teller, right? And be popular with the people that close the resources. All right. So they tried to silence me by not funding my work. And, uh, and I said, you might keep me from doing this work, you know, because I'm not a man of means. If I was, I'd take my own money, which the little I have, I've taken it and invested in our work. But you won't silence me from having a voice, you know, and from trying to, to, to express my opinion. I'm not going to give up my constitutional right that people shed blood for, right, and died, that I could speak freely and use the press freely. Uh, and have freedom of thought. So we had to pivot a bit to figure out how we maintain our organization. So we got into uh, uh, working, doing things where we could generate revenue. Mm-hmm. Now, As far as it's kept, we were one of the largest property owners on the west side of Charleston. We have been. Uh, we got some grant money. We uh, secured some loans. And we said we will take the approach of trying to rebuild the community. And we have rehabbed over 25 houses, have had another 12 or so torn down, a couple of commercial buildings, and uh trying to create safe, affordable uh, non-public housing uh, for particularly uh, single mothers with children and and couples with children. Uh, But as a way of generating some revenue to run a much smaller organization than what we ran in the past. But during that time, we continue to do uh, in-depth research in areas that we feel like are the issues that have the greatest impact on perpetuating uh, systemic and generational poverty and so we've tried to really dip deeply into that and start bringing things to the surface to try to force legislators to deal with some of these issues and they're very reluctant to do it right so you go back and you find me a speech that any politician gave during the last election where they said well i'm if I get in office i'm gonna come with a plan to address poverty it just doesn't happen <laughs> it, all right, well. talk about it. You go to any yeah. of our major flagship universities and try to ask them, well, what are y'all doing? How many classes do y'all te- teach on how to address poverty? Can you get a major or a minor? You can't. So there's no serious conversation, no serious research been done, apart from what my organization has done on the cause that contribute to poverty in West Virginia. And except for what we have put forth as a plan to address poverty, We can't find where anyone has has even uh, produced any type of uh, written work uh, to that end. So there are a few things that we're going to bring out this legislative session. We think think the timing might be right for some of those things to be heard now in light of COVID-19.
1: Hey, what's up, guys? Cooper here. I hope you're having a fabulous day. I'm in a great mood because we have recently launched the Cardinal Collection. Now, what is the Cardinal Collection? Well, that's our signature merchandise line that's available on mountaineermedia.org. So the state bird, West Virginia, it's a Cardinal. We figured, what the heck, let's put out a merchandise line with the Cardinal very discreetly on some sort of merchandise, and let's really, really embrace our state culture in that manner. So we did right it's available right now on mountaineermedia.org we've got hats and shirts so far and we hope to launch some other products very very soon now look if you might be thinking you know what money's a little bit tight I got great news we have discount codes so if you want a discount on your mountaineer media merch sign up for the newsletter Our newsletter is free. It comes to your inbox maybe once or twice a month. It's going to give you updates on blogs. It's going to give you updates on episodes. It's also going to give you discount codes for our shop on MountaineerMedia.org. So we appreciate that. It really does help us continue this fun project and shine light on West Virginians. So it means the world to us if you listen, of course, and also if you purchase on MountaineerMedia.org. I think that's it. So let's get right back to the episode now with Reverend Matthew J. Watts. Thank you.
0: You know, have you seen over these years that your team has grown? You know, maybe more people are listening now than they have before. How do you feel like even you as a leader, uh, you know, has have, have you seen that you're following? Maybe people are listening more so than now than ever, kind of like you just alluded to in part because of COVID-19 and the things that we experienced in 2020? Do you feel like people are listening now more than ever? I I
2: don't know, CJ. i tell you what. uh, If I have one thing that probably, I'm not going to say it it disappoints me, it probably sads me more than anything, is with all the work that the organization has done over the years uh, with young people and for youth, I thought when I came to this, Point in my career that I'll have a lot of young people around me that it benefited from my programs that we got out of jail that we kept from going to prison and they would see the worth of what we were doing and they want to lend their voice to support that just simply hasn't happened, simply hasn't happened. You know, if you go back and look at the record, and I'm not talking about this publicly, but if you talk to the attorneys that represented uh, Randy Moss, if you talk to the prosecutor the attorney prosecuting. You talk to the judge that was sitting over his case, they all would say that the single business factor to him getting a second chance was my late friend, Al Perry and me. And most mm-hmm. people don't even know that. And we uh, wrote the, I wrote the El sentence Program, and I presented to the court, and Randy Moss was released under my supervision uh, during that wow. summer, he could have been sent to prison. And most yeah. people don't even know that. And he's never mentioned it. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. We need all the opportunity to do it when it's Hall of Fame conversation and so forth. Now, my point is, you know, we don't, that doesn't bother me. Very few people mention all the work we've done for them, right? But he's the one that, you know, I don't know if you know or not, I, I was featured in the thirty thirty special. Go back and look at it. Oh, yeah. You don't run him off, right? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, so what I'm saying is, um, I don't think so. I, I just don't think that many people really are listening, right? And I tell people often, you know, um, the one thing that I don't have time to do is I don't have time to start over, right? I know what I've learned. I know the research we've done. So most people are getting this work, they want to start over. And I'm trying to say, well, you're not going to get anywhere. And i say to people jokingly, I've become an expert on how to not get anything done. I got a PhD in it, right? <laughs> if, if here's how you don't get anything done, just start over. Right. Show up, just keep starting over
1: Or let the government run some study on it and then that'll yeah, be a decade. Let, let's, let's
2: study it again, right? Let, let's yeah. bring in some more PhDs and some researchers and let's study it again. And then you never you never really get anything done. But well and I'm, like, t- I'm, optimistic. I'm optimistic, I'm optimistic because of COVID nineteen. I'll go let you ask the question, I'll tell you why.
1: Well, I, I like, let me unpack a few things you said there, Reverend Watts, because I liked a lot of it is that, um, and it can really be applicable to a lot of different situations or community problems, is that if you keep trying to just like put out the symptom, like fires, right, and you're not in pursuit of the actual problem, you're going to be doing that in perpetuity. If you're Absolutely. always trying to, you know, treat symptoms, but you're not trying to find out what the root cause is, that's, that's a recipe for a lifelong struggle against it, right? Um, number two is that you know politicians on both sides of the aisle campaign speeches everything is we're going to charge ahead we're going to do these things but what ends up happening is it's a lot of speech a lot of rhetoric and then a couple months go by a couple years go by and then what the where actual change happens is the nitty-gritty community work that's That's not it's not sexy it's not fun it's not it's not like a cool press release type thing it's it's massive amounts of effort it's rallying people it's continuous communication and that's Mm -hmm. where you said like you know, it's frustrating and a lot of people look to the government almost to solve these problems. But a lot of the times folks like yourself that are like kind of fed up with, you know what, we're just going to be the change that we're trying to see. Like, no, 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 like we're going to do it. Like we're going to shoulder that and try to do it. So like we commend you obviously for those efforts. Um, But like you said, a lot of the times that goes because it's not neatly packaged and presented for people to consume, that goes unnoticed because they don't necessarily realize that what all it takes, I guess, to, you know, do these type of programs or to even have the success. It wasn't just because such and such politician said something. It was because, you know, a dozens and dozens and hundreds and you sure. know people tried an effort like that. Um, but yeah, with, with, with COVID, I mean, and, and then obviously that throws in a whole nother mix. I think it, it exacerbates. There's a lot of problems. Something I've seen, you know, you speak about is that even, um, having access to the vaccine for um uh african-american communities in west virginia has been i'm not sure i don't want to quote the actual statistic but it's it's much less than folks um that are not african-american um yeah. what, what have we what have we do you see anything like or is anybody saying we're going to look into this or is it more just kind of what we talked about it's just kind of like well yeah. i don't know you know what i mean like
2: i, I think that eventually they, they will get there when there are more vaccines uh that are made available uh, when yeah. the Johnson Johnson vaccine comes online, that doesn't require the uh, deep uh, freeze refrigeration, and it's a one uh, one dose of vaccine. But but here, here's what we were trying to bring to attention. We do not believe that the disparity in African-Americans getting the vaccine, we don't think that it's intentional, right? right. And so anytime uh, as an African-American, particularly this African-American, anytime I raise a question, people start getting defensive, like I'm accusing them of something. No. I'm, I'm highlighting something to you that you may have not thought about. And here's what it is. When they start out, for a simple illustration, they started out that you get the vaccine if you were 80 and above. When they came to the public, right? First they had to do the nursing homes and the care homes. Right. And and I, and I totally agree with that. That was a priority. When they came to the general public, it was 80 and above. And almost no African-Americans were getting appointments to get a vaccine. And it wasn't some clandestine conspiracy. It was the law of numbers. In West Virginia, there are 73,000 and change Caucasians over the age of 80. There are 1,733 African-Americans over the age of 80. It's simply the law of numbers. Mm-hmm. And those 1733 are scattered across the state. Mm-hmm. So when to get an appointment, you got to get on the telephone to get through. And you've got thousands of Caucasians trying to get an appointment and a handful of African-Americans, the law of numbers is the probability of the African-American getting an appointment was slim, and that's what happened. They were not being discriminated about, against, right? It was not the de facto, it wasn't intentional, right? It was just the structure of the system. And we had a simple fix for it, which they refused to even respond to. When I say they, we sent it to the drug czar Clay Marsh, to the commissioner for the Bureau of Public Health, uh, Dr. An Amjad, and they sent it to the secretary, uh, Bill Crouch, and uh, my own, the Irving's Office of Minority Director, Jill Upson. And it, it was just simple. We said, why don't you do this? Why don't you lower the age for African-Americans to get the vaccine to 60? That would bring in an additional roughly 7,000. It would still only be 9,100 African-Americans that would be eligible, right? Uh, and still 73,000 Caucasian. Secondly, We said, why don't you look at, say, for Kanoa County? And since um, in in Kanoa County, 20, 22% of all Black people in the state live in Kanoa County, Kanoa County has 8% African American population, right at 8,000 people. So we said, so in Kanoa County, as a test case, why don't you reserve 8% of the appointments and 8% of the vaccines? That's not a affirmative action program, that's just 8% at least representation. And then if African-Americans don't fill those slots, let them go to whoever is next in line. That, that's, that's all we ask. That's simple. They, res- they refuse to even respond to the request. They've yet to respond to the government's request. The government's office has yet to respond to the request. So then people say, well, African-Americans don't want the vaccine. You may have heard me say on the network news. That's nonsense. It's right. absolute nonsense, right? And so then what ended up happening was a group, uh, Cabin Creek Health system, system, some kind of way that they got some vaccines and they said, look, uh, we didn't know, we thought they only had 300. They had a whole lot more than 300. They said, yeah. we have 300 slots that we have to fill. And they called my office and we said, look, we can make it happen. I yeah. got my pastor James Ely, we got all the slots filled that they had that was available. Yeah. Uh, they, they, the people got the shots last week. Mm-hmm. So it's that type of insensitivity. And people don't understand the insensitivity that the government has. And I'm not talking about the party because it's not any different which right. party it is. It's just a basic insensitivity. So it's like, I kept trying to tell people, you know, we're not, we're not totally stupid. I mean, we can think a little bit, right? And we learn math and we know a little about statistics and, and probability. And maybe you do too, but you didn't you're not thinking about that when you rolled these systems out and you say it's a first come, first served basis. The system was so bad that they rolled out that they got so many complaints from all over the states because everybody was on the phone for hours trying to get an appointment. And finally they end up hiring a consultant to come in with a computer system. And now anyone can go in and at least they can get registered.
0: Just sign up. Yeah, get
2: signed up. Now they might get a vaccine. You young guys, y'all might get vaccine for three or four months, but at least they make you feel like you've been heard, right? You on all the right. phone, you register. You guys are savvy with the computer. You can go up on the on the computer. Th- that's what I'm trying to say. And it, it's taken all of these. Comp- we start talking to them about this in April. Yeah, you go to my Facebook page, April 23rd, April 24th. There are calls out there. I had with Joe Manchin the third on the 23rd in Manchin and Dr. Clay Marshall on the 24th with 60 some other African-Americans around the state. These are the conversations we've had about expanding testing, right? They, 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 they finally did expand the testing because they got more testing and we committed them that and we complimented them for it. We knew the same things would be happening with the vaccination. One last point, it's, it's heartbreaking. It's, it's hurtful more than anything we made a request to them on April the 24th to Clay Marsh, the drug czar. Simple request was, will you go back to the governor's office? Will you ask them if they would establish an African-American Coronavirus Task Force comprised of African-American health, public health and mental health officials? And we told them exactly where they were. Most of them, Dr. Marsh, works for you, in W Health Sciences, in the uh, Western School of Public Health, mm-hmm. Medical School and Ruby Hospital. Then that CMC Hospital, CMC Medical School through WVU, Marshall Medical School, Marshall, uh, uh, Cowboy Huntington. That's where they are. So then, two or three days later, they came back and said, "We're going. We got a big idea." On TV, the governor's people said this: "We're going to create an African American Coronavirus Task Force." <laughs> they never <laughs> even mentioned that we brought the idea to their attention. But that was great. Okay, uh, Pleasurism is the highest form of flattery, right? That was great. They then impound a African-American coronavirus task force that doesn't have a single African-American health, mental health or public health official on the task force. Not one. And, I we're didn't pa- right. <laughs> and we're in a pandemic. But let me tell you what, it's even more bizarre than that. And guys like you need to bring this up. We're in a pandemic. We got a school of public health was established in 2012. Where are they? What are they doing? What are they researching? What's those medical researchers doing? What's more, marsh- they have not been enlisted. They have not been mobilized. You see, this is problematic. And what I've said to other people in the media, as a private citizen, I do not expect the governor and his uh, administration officials, I don't expect them to know everything about everybody, about everything. Yeah. But what yeah. I do expect for them to do when we are in a major pandemic like this, or face a major problem, is to enlist the support of those qualified minds that are available to them and then uh, enlist them and solicit their input their ideas to help you shape the plan moving forward and that hasn't been done with this pandemic and it, apart from me I don't hear about this raising the question why did other states have their top people working on this Why is it the federal level where the first thing that this uh, the newly elected president did was a similar uh, task force of the top people. I was listening before I came on with you guys, as they were giving a briefing today. I think they're going to do that maybe every Monday moving forward. Mm-hmm. But in this state, we hear the same people talk. And that's what people stop listening to them. It's the same people, and they say almost the same thing. And what needs to happen is our other health, mental health, and public health people need to be unmuted, their tongues unbridled, and we need to hear from some other folks. And that's what we were suggesting in terms of if you want to really uh, increase the confidence and trust that African-Americans have in the whole process, the testing, the vaccines, let them hear from some African-American people who are trained in that field to share what they think and encourage people you know, to. So that's, to me, it's, it's, uh, it's frustrating to me, but I think that that's why we have problems in West Virginia because uh-huh. we, don't, we don't pull together a diversity of thought. To solve the problems and so you create an echo chamber of the right. same people talking to each other and see same the same the same thing and a lot of the ideas that they do postulate uh, may have a good foundation but they're not properly supported on every side they haven't considered all the ramifications so they they, they come up a little bit short
1: yeah it's uh man it, it sure is it's uh It's unfortunate. It's a mess. I mean, the whole, obviously the whole, the whole country and the whole world is dealing with it, but it's, you know, people, uh, you know, when it's local, you know, it, it seems to be like everyone like cares about things like nationally, but then it's like, okay, but locally you have to act like you have to be the person that like you can't just be a bystander and this type of stuff. So that's kind of, I mean, I, that's why I love our platform is that we're not, I sure. mean, we CJ and I, Mason and I, we built this ourselves. So we're not beholden to anybody kind of censoring mm-hmm. us. We, we love having guests like you on to give us the straight talk, the real stuff, because this is what people need to hear. Um, and, and, and it's like, you know, I can't tell people what to watch or who to listen to, but I think you got to expose yourself. And you, like you said mm-hmm. earlier, you got to have an ear. You got to listen as well. I mean, we have two ears and one mouth, the classic saying, we got to listen to each other. Um, what I would wanna, you go to, Jim? You know, I kind of want to bring this up too, because it is
0: funny. We, we, we've talked about the issues that within the system right now, West Virginia at scale is being heralded as the dude. leader. and and vaccinations across the country but when you do break it down even within the 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 umbrella of good there are still so many issues that we we just can't forget about certainly you want to be one of those people hey let's not forget about the 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 details of of of
2: excellent point i I was just listening before we came on before i came with you guys where you know our, our governor was being interviewed by craig melvin you know msnbc and He's he didn't been getting up okay. someone else earlier today because Craig Melvin may reference to the fact I saw you on another network, right? So, yeah. we, and, and I, I, I think it is great that we have topped the nation in getting vaccines out of the vials and into the arms, and I commend them for that. You know, we're just asking them not to forget. You know, uh, this 3.6 percent of African Americans, and right now, whites have been vaccinated uh, at a, a, like 12.6 percent of all whites in the state have been vaccinated. Uh, and only 5% of all Blacks. And we said, well, why can't we be at 12% at that same rate, right? It's because we have an opportunity to get to the, the appointments. But there's one other thing I want to touch on before we, we, we leave today that I think is a major issue. I think we're a major issue in the re- legislature that I would like for you and your listeners to pay attention to. For the last five years, I've done a deep dive into this issue of the excessive discipline and the disproportionate suspension and expulsion of low-income white children and black children from public schools. And it's a crisis all over America. And West Virginia is not immune to that. And most people don't realize 18,000 children are suspended from schools in West Virginia every year. And mm-hmm. the majority of them are low income white children because the low income white population, you know, it's the population that's most that's disciplined and suspended. But blacks are suspended twice the rates of white children. And even Black middle class and upper middle class kids are suspended at a much higher rate. What I'm trying to bring attention to is that I call this the silent, unnoticed, unrecognized, underlying condition. And what I've been saying in my writings and in my uh, Facebook polling, this is the most important thing that I've ever worked on in my nearly 40 years of public service. I did not realize how severe this was. And it's at the root, uh, Cooper, you said earlier the root it may be at the root of much of West Virginia's negative uh, social uh, pathology. And by that, I mean, suspension contributes to truancy, truancy contributes to kids being, uh, uh, well, they they, they become truant because those suspended days are unaccused absences. It often brings them to the juvenile justice system. They're falling behind in school. Many of them end up dropping out of school and then they're on the schoolyard to prison pipeline. I probably read 35 different studies that's been done by universities around the country. The probably the most impressive one, uh, in a way, were two, the University of Pennsylvania study that really started me on this journey five years ago when they analyzed suspension in 13 Southern states. And West Virginia is considered 13th Northern or most Southern state. And quickly, what they, what they pointed out is that there were 2.6 million children suspended from public schools in America every year, 2.6 million. 1.2 million of them are black. 1.2 to 2.6 million suspended are black, uh, right nearly 50%, even though blacks only are 13 to 15% of the public school population. But what's really uh, concerning is that 55% of all black children suspended from school in the United States of America are suspended from the 13 southern states, from the wow. Confederate, right? 55%. Wow. Of all black children suspended in the United States of America are suspended from schools in the southern uh, 13 southern states. And those states also have some of the highest incarceration rates. That's why I believe this is one of the most important things I've ever worked on. And the study that was done by two professors, well, not a group of professors, from Bowling Green State University and from Eastern Kentucky University, they did a longitudinal study over a seven-year period, and then they've concluded that suspensions is the most significant factor that puts kids from the school to the prison pipeline. And so for five years, we've been trying to bring this attention to the Western State School Board and Superintendent's Office and they would do nothing about it. Nothing, absolutely nothing. Last year, we finally got it before the legislature and they promised me one bill and then they uh, passed the bill, Senate Bill 723, it basically says, we want the state board and the state school superintendent to collect the data and study it for two more years and come back with some recommendations in 2022. But fortunately, a young delegate uh, from down in Putnam County, uh, uh, Joshua Hickambotham, he's indicated to me that he plans on running an aggressive bill this year. He has support uh, from uh, the uh, House Education Chair, Dr. Joe Ellington, and we're going to see. But this is a bill that everybody needs to be paying attention to because we don't realize how we are basically uh, sentencing many children uh, to uh, lives of poverty, right, Mm -hmm. under education, underemployment. And we're paying for them to go to school, but they've been suspended, and in many cases, they've been suspended for very, very minor, insignificant things. And one wow. thing I'm going to show you some illustration here to show you how bad it is. Two years ago, the state school board amended the disciplinary policy, and they said, "Okay, uh, we're going to let principals have total control, and they can suspend a child for the lowest level of violation, and at their judgment, and we're not going to hold it against them." So, prior to that, they suspended a the kid for level one minor offense. If they suspended them for that, it was held against the school and that that kid was considered absent. It counted against the school's attendance, which is a performance measure for principals. So now principal can suspend a child for low-level violations and not be held against them in any way. Hmm. So I went to the superintendent. I said, well, I want to report. I want to know how many kids were suspended for level one violations in the last school year. This was last year. And he told me, I can't tell you. I said, what do you mean you can't tell me? The superintendent said, because if a principal was going to suspend their child for level one, they entered into the system as it's a level three. It was a level one, but they entered as a level three. That's the second highest offense that you can get. It goes with your permanent record card all through your educational career. I said, well, that would be like for me getting a traffic ticket for not wearing a seatbelt, go to court to pay the $25 fine, get there, And the judge said, I'm charging you with drunken, reckless driving. I'm going to sit in prison, right? I said, that that can't work. I mean, I I said, you you said the kid did something they didn't do. But that's happening right now in West Virginia. And we found out, I wouldn't dig a deeper study. I found out that West Virginia has has the least restrictive criteria uh, as to what a principal can suspend a kid for. Thirty states have passed laws limiting what a kid can be suspended from schools for. West Virginia pretty much at the principal's discretion, a child can be suspended from school. And we wanna bring this fully to the public's attention so they realize this is one of the contributing factors to our juvenile delinquency rate, our dropout rate, our poor educational achievement, and the poor preparation that many kids have when they graduate from high school. They just don't miss too much school.
1: Right, you it starts 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 early on, like you said. It's it's uh, exactly. I mean, it's a snowball effect to where it causes problems all down the road. Wow. The road. It could um, be as simple as instead of suspending somebody, maybe just stick
0: them in ISS for a day or two. I I don't right. know. I think they're
2: no. Yeah, it's exactly right. That's what some 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 states are saying. No, you must have in-school suspension. Yeah. You must, and, and and they fund it, and the kid must receive academic instruction while they're there. We only want kids out of the building, just so disruptive, right? Or certain violent things, bring a gun or whatever. But other states realize that uh, we're undermining the education for uh, thousands of children. Think about this 18,000 kids in West Virginia suspended every year. You now, sometimes it's the same kids, but over a 10 year period, how many kids were affected by that? Well, yeah. So we're just trying to bring it to the public's attention because what I found in all of my work. If the public don't pay attention, everything get, goes off the rails. Mm-hmm. That's what's wrong with the juvenile justice system. See, in the juvenile matters, the public can't be in a juvenile court. The public cannot be in those hearings. They are strictly confidential. So the public doesn't even know how the juvenile justice system is ran. If they did, they would say, well, this doesn't even make sense. That's what right. they would say. I sit in hundreds of juvenile hearings, and I said, well, this not making sense. Well, the same thing happens with the suspension and expulsion. It's happening in this vacuum. And no one really knows what the process is. All we know is there are certain groups of kids that seem to be missing a lot of school. And in many cases, they should not be suspended from school. And uh, Hmm. I think that once people realize what they're doing, then the public is going to demand some things change. And I recognize some kids are so disruptive. I recognize that some kids really, you got to find an alternative situation. You can't let them disrupt everything, disrupt education for everybody. But the thing there is just too the principal has too much power and almost no accountability to anyone for his or her decisions. Yeah, and that's what we want people to understand.
1: Yeah, well, we'll yeah. certainly we'll certainly use our pl- uh, platform to shine light. on it. it. Yeah, yeah, man. Um, of course. Well, look, Reverend Watts. Look, we we appreciate you coming on. I mean, you're a community leader. You are a proud West Virginian. You are making the state a better place. You have your entire life. So. We we appreciate you coming on and um, having this honest conversation because, like we've kind of like we've been saying, like we have to. These are a lot of these nuanced problems are not what's in the headlines. But I I'm an optimist. I tend to believe that if we keep communicating and we keep trying to share and shine light, then I think that leads to progress. So we appreciate you sharing your uh, your perspective on it.
2: I appreciate. Yep. If I just make one plug for my Facebook page.
1: Please please please, Matthew,
2: uh, Matthew J. Watts. I had never been on Facebook until the pandemic. But I feel like my daughter's a nurse and she's an essential worker. So I said, I'm gonna be an essential worker as a, as a minister, as a pastor. So since March the 11th of 2020, I've posted 350 some postings during a period of time. I preached 80, 75 days in a row, at least once. Huh. And so anybody wanna look at my diary, it's all out there on Facebook. All no. the sermons I've preached, all the postings I've made, all the devotions, they're all out there because I want the record to show that I was an essential worker during the pandemic. I wasn't a slacker, CJ. <laughs> no. <laughs> I was well, an essential worker. I didn't, I didn't take a vacation since the <laughs> church didn't <be> open <laughs> I was on my, on, on my post, all right?
1: Thanks, yeah. guys. Okay. Thank you. See you, Reverend. Hey. All right, guys, that'll do it for another episode of the Mountaineer Media Podcast. Big thank you to Reverend Matthew J. Watts for coming on and sharing some incredible stories, some honest takes, and a lifetime worth of experience. Um, You know, his life, right? I mean, he's lived this stuff. He literally preaches this stuff. Um, He's the reverend and you know we just uh we appreciate him coming on and giving a perspective that we all need to hear, understand and empathize with because if West Virginia is going to be a place that we love and you know embrace, we have to have that same attitude for all West Virginians, right? no matter what your race is, your you know ethnicity, your who you love, Know, what your political affiliation is west virginia should be a place that we all can enjoy love support one another and just simply be kind and embrace one another as human beings so we appreciate reverend watts coming on to the mountaineer media podcast hey guys look another quick update why i've got you still here if if you're looking at blogs if you're not much of an audio podcast you like these maybe when you're driving but you know maybe at night you'd like to have something to read go to mountaineermedia.org and read some incredible blogs we'll read some. Added a couple new people. I think our team is close to 12 people now, and they're pumping out things like health tips, West Virginia history, uh, medical marijuana information, um, all kinds of public health stuff. Really, really cool um, blogs that are coming out uh, seemingly by the hour, but check that out. Merchandise is always available on mountaineermedia.org. Discount codes if you sign up for the newsletter, you get discount codes. Save you some money enjoy the podcast, learn about West Virginia, rock our gear, and save some money while you're doing it. So look, guys, as always, we appreciate CJ Mason. Hey, forgot Mason. Look, never forget Mason. Shout out Mason Jack for producing the Mountaineer Media Podcast. And uh, my partner CJ and I, you know, we're, we're just, uh, we're through the moon, guys. We feel like we're rolling, we're firing on all cylinders. You know, we're really, really excited about where this is going to take us and, you know, what we've built thus far. But we want you along for the ride. So if you can, leave us a review, reach out to us, tell us what you want us to look into next. And uh, we'll keep this thing rolling right into 2021. So thank you guys. Have a great week. And we'll see you next week on the Mountaineer Media Podcast.